Welcome to the Winning with Shopify podcast. This is the podcast that will teach you to take your Shopify store and turn it into a business-growing sales machine. It has the latest marketing, email, sales, SEO, and social media advice, and also has strategies and tips from the experts without fluff. Your host is Nick Truman. He's a Shopify expert and an education partner with the Shopify-approved course, 1,000 Sales and Beyond. He's the CEO of JustAskParker.com, a global specialist marketing agency for Shopify owners. Nick has over 13 years experience in digital marketing from PPC and SEO through to digital transformation of businesses. He's helped hundreds of brands from startup Shopify stores through to international enterprises that operate in hundreds of countries. Nick will be sharing his knowledge and interview the experts to help you in your journey to success. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Nick Truman. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Winning with Shopify podcast. For anyone who hasn't tuned in before, my name's Nick. I've been running the podcast since June 2020 when I took over from my lovely assistant, Caroline. I say assistant, she's the founder. I probably shouldn't call her that, but uh, we're, uh, we're good friends, so we can say what we want in, uh, in this lovely little closed space, which is the Winning with Shopify podcast. For anyone who hasn't tuned in before, I host the podcast, of course, and feel free to check out a few resources that we've got for you guys. The first one is this podcast, so feel free to hit the subscribe button, leave us a review, tell us what you think. The second one that's really, really important and something we're going to start using more over the next sort of six to 12 months is our Facebook group. So feel free to go on Facebook, type in winning with Shopify and start to join the conversation that is, uh, that's been going on there for, for quite a few years now as well. As you'll probably be aware by either the title or from tuning into previous weeks, we're currently in the middle of a series all about social Social media is something that I've probably neglected a little bit during the first few months of running this podcast. We're doing a very interesting series now, and we've had a complete range of guests from paid social to store owners to somebody who had a store, sold the store, and now helps other stores grow and eventually sell as well. Um, Today, we've got a very special guest. His name's John, and he's from a company called Hydrant. So without further ado, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm excited to chat Shopify. Excellent, excellent. And something you can probably tell as well is uh, I thought John was going to be American because he's based in the US, but then suddenly the accent kicked in <laughs> when we connected over a few minutes ago. So uh, delighted to have you with us. Before we dive in, John, do you want to give us a quick overview to Hydrant, sort of how you started, what the journey's looked like so far? Yeah, absolutely. So the start, it, it started off with just being myself. So I was a solo founder back in 2017, went through a crowdfunding campaign to get some like initial capital to do the production run. The, the way I came to hydration was really solving my own problem. I, I was trying to find a way to be more energized throughout the day, decrease caffeine consumption. And I'd read that hydration helps with that. But when I just drank tons and tons of water, it didn't seem to solve the problem. So I started getting into the science. My, my background is in science. I studied biology and uh, basically learned about the power of electrolytes and how balance is what it's all about. So from there, I got this business up and running, was doing very nominal revenue, and was introduced to my now co-founder, Jay, who has a very different background. He comes from that finance world, private equity, consulting, and we just have like totally different skill sets, but very complementary when it comes to signing a business. So he joined and we took on a round of funding and started to grow the product lines and, and really just add more distribution channels to our business. So that was in 2018. And we are now 22 people, I believe. Wow. And we're sold in major stores in America and Amazon and, of course, Shopify. 
Nice. I mean, what an amazing journey. And one of the reasons I, or one of the honors I get as hosting the podcast to hear these things from people. And I think one of the things I'm going to pull out quickly that we've never spoken about since I've been hosting the podcast, and we're going to go on a very, very quick tangent, crowdfunding. I've heard so much about stores starting with crowdfunding. I myself have used it before. Do you want to just give us a quick overview of what, what it is, how it worked for you, et cetera, just very, very quickly. I think it's probably quite relevant to quite a few of our listeners. Yeah. So I, th- I think for my category, so food and beverage slash supplements, although at the time it was really just food and beverage, the average order value is relatively low. You're, you're looking somewhere in the sort of $20 to $50 range. And for that, crowdfunding represents a pre-order function. That, that is like the simplest way of, of putting it. Okay. And I have mixed thoughts really on, 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 on how effective it is. I, I think my expectations going in were that it would be a massive win. And it certainly wasn't a massive like win. a big silver bullet kind of exactly. solves everything, gets you started, yeah. And it's not that. What you realize is the most successful campaigns are they're driving a lot of traffic to their campaign page. They're, they're just treating it as a website that doesn't have a product yet, but they're driving people to, to you know, sign up and purchase. I did not do all of that. I maybe like did a little bit of dabbling, but I really didn't have much money at that stage. I needed the money in order to, to bring this thing to life. So... For me, it was a, a way to get some early adopters, some of whom are still customers, as well as to help your like friends and family rally around you and, and basically pre-order your product. So very useful, but I wouldn't put all of my eggs in that basket next time around. Sure, sure. And I think it was the same experience for me. We, we ran a little sunglasses business for a while on a Shopify store, partly as a test. You know, it's done between a few of us who run marketing agencies. And we thought, wonder what the clients are doing all day. You know, let's experience their world for a little bit. And crowdfunding made so much sense. But quite quickly, we, I think about a month in to our two-month campaign or something, we looked at the numbers and were like, where's all the sales? Like, we, we assumed this was going to bankroll the whole business. And we'd heard... You know, we'd sort of been sucked in by all the success stories that we, we read on like Kickstarter yeah. and Indiegogo and whatever. And as you say, then I actually know an agency in the UK who shoot videos for Kickstarter campaigns. And as soon as I realized that, I, it made me aware of, okay, this is not a, yeah, you don't sort of dip your toes in. They send you tons and tons of customers. Customer gets a good discount. You get the pre-orders in. You've got your money to do all your uh, manufacturing, or whatever now, but realize that actually the ones that do really, really well, it's it's a bit, it's almost like viral marketing. You have to go crazy mass market or it's just not going to do anything or at least at least drive niche markets a mass market within a niche sort of thing. So no, interesting. No, so thanks for that. I just, again, I thought it'd be interesting just to go down that tangent quickly, but let's talk about social. So that's what we're doing with this series. And one of the things that excited me about interviewing you, and you've just told me otherwise <laughs> before we hit the record button, was that I looked at your social channels and I thought, wow, these are some good numbers, certainly for a you know business that's small but certainly on the rise the numbers look pretty exciting but social tell us you know how's it all going just to kind of in a nutshell and then we'll dig into some of the channels afterwards but in a nutshell how's it all running so far yeah so i think i should caveat what i was saying before we hit record okay um (laughs) what i would say is is organic social is has not been a major focus for us really at any stage during the business it is absolutely crucial that you invest a sort of base level into it because for many people, it, it acts as the landing page. So if you're running uh, paid spend through Facebook or Instagram, a lot of people, rather than clicking on the Shop Now button, will click on the brand name. And then they're going to land on your Instagram page or your Facebook page. And it needs to look alive and it needs to you know show your brand in a good light. And certainly our team does a fantastic job at making it look good and, and making it speak to our brand. 
that doesn't mean that we spend a lot of resources building that out. We're kind of occasionally we'll test a new platform. So like we are investing a little bit more in TikTok right now, for example, to try and really just understand it. These these new platforms that are algorithm led, it, it, it's a whole different ballgame. So if we're speaking about organic social specifically, I'd say we do sort of like enough to support our paid efforts, but not a lot more than that. And that's something I think we will be investing in more over time, just as our business becomes more omnichannel, because we're, you know, on the shelf in Walmart in the States, it might be that there's a customer, I don't know, in Nebraska who picks us up off the shelf and they've never seen or heard of Hydrant and I'm not standing next to that shelf to make the, the pitch. Sure. So they might go check us out on social media and that's when it really matters that you build trust with them and you build that relationship through your organic channels. So more investment to be made there. I think the, the trust is the, is the key word there. And I think, you know, the first bit you were saying was absolutely speaks volumes to that, that if somebody finds your website for the first time, one of the things they will do, and I'll be honest, it wasn't the only reason I opened your Facebook and Instagram. It's, it's a business like ours. It's one of the reasons we, or one of the things we look at when we look at potential clients or people we're having on the podcast or companies we're going to engage with is, do people know about this company? And actually, if I loaded up your Facebook and saw 100 followers, my, my next question to the chap that introduced us would have been, are these guys for real? Like, are they a proper business? Or I maybe would have gone to LinkedIn to check how many employees you've got or, or gone on Trustpilot to actually see the actual reviews. So I think, as you say, having a, a, a level of presence is, is absolutely key, almost as a box tick to the customer. You know, we are a real business. People know who we are. We have customers and stuff is going on, almost the kind of keeping the lights on, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that's a, a great summation of, of why it's important. Cool, cool. So what, what are some of the main channels that you guys use on social then? So we're, we're really focused on Facebook, Instagram, primarily above all else, from an organic standpoint. That's where the majority people are. We do have a TikTok presence now. We're kind of figuring it out as we go. On the paid side, it is also very heavily focused on Instagram and Facebook still with a little bit of Google mixed in. So that that's where a lot of our investment is through those social channels. But I'm hoping that, you know, if we can figure out some of the algorithmic stuff on TikTok, there's a lot of opportunity to be had there just because it does function so differently to those existing. I mean, like, Facebook and Instagram have been around for a long time. There, there are playbooks there. They're still evolving, but they evolve a little bit slower than a new platform where even the, the platform itself is figuring out how to run marketing and ads on their platform. So a lot of opportunity to be had. It's just, it takes a lot of tinkering to figure out exactly what the right fit for our brand is on that platform. Sure. And I think TikTok's a really interesting topic, actually, which we won't cover today in a, in a huge amount of detail, I think, just because it's, as you say, it's still trying to figure itself out. Whereas... I know from from experience, a lot of our listeners will be on sort of Facebook and Instagram most evenings, scratching their heads, just looking at that blank, share something interesting, the blank box of what we're going to write next. You know, what should we post up? Is anyone even going to engage into that? So I guess, I mean, organically, you guys do have, I mean, it's all relative, but you have some good followings. You know, it's certainly not the 100, 200, it's tens of thousands. How, how did that come about? How did you guys attract those? Is that just general brand awareness, customers finding you and then going on there? Or, you know, it sounds to me like there hasn't been a huge amount of effort in actually building that audience out. Yeah, that's right. It really hasn't been a focus. I think over time, now that we've been doing this for a few years, there have been sort of periods where we've invested in building our followers and, you know, a period of posting a lot of stories or putting more in the feed and, and trying to test different approaches. 
the reality is running any amount of paid spend is going to drive up your follow account. People do click through to your page and then they follow it. We also, you know, post in our emails to existing customers, we say, hey, well, you know, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter as well as a way to like grow those follow accounts because your email channel is a little bit different. Like the, the ways that you use it is a little bit different to the way you might want to use your Instagram. So it helps to get people in both camps effectively. Sure. And I guess one of the biggest differences with email, it's in their inbox and it's the only thing they're staring at. Whereas Instagram, they're flowing through the feed. And the other thing that Facebook and Instagram do incredibly well, and probably the same algorithm, given they've got the same owner now, but in the background, they're, they're only surfacing content to users that the users have engaged with recently or is similar to stuff they've engaged with. You know, it's a big change they made a few years ago where people like myself used to try and try and keep on top of the Facebook feed. So it would just be in timestamp order, whereas now it's not. It chooses what to surface to you. So if somebody's followed you and then hasn't engaged for a long time, the chance of them actually seeing an organic post you put out is pretty slim. Whereas an email, if they're an engaged customer, an email's straight into their inbox and right there. I think a lot of businesses that we've worked with and a lot of um, the feedback we've had about certainly Instagram has been that it's probably only their most recent 10 or 20% of their followers that actually see anything. The other guys are still following them, but they're not engaging, which is when you can end up with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers and very little in the way of likes and comments on content which actually is the opposite of what Google was looking for from an SEO point of view. So I think, yeah, it is interesting just comparing the two and seeing how, how different they are. Yeah, it, it, feels, it feels a little bit sleepy on Facebook and Instagram in some ways. And, and I think a lot of that is this push from, the, from Facebook, I guess, which owns both, to getting, sort of squeezing more dollars out of brands like us. Now that the feed is not chronological and it's algorithmically designed, they're able to control... You know, how much of it is going to be group activity? How much of it is going to be companies that you follow? How much of it is your friends? What is important for people to see? And I think over time, what's happened is companies or brands have been kind of slowly weaned out of the feed. And if you want to be in it, you have to be using that boost feature, yeah. paying, paying that, that sort of extra dollars to get eyeballs on your post. And, and at that point, you have to ask yourself, well, what's the return on this investment? Is there value to people engaging with an organic social media post that doesn't have a clear call to action and isn't directly driving a sort of revenue output. And it, it gets a little bit tricky to do the math on that because you're not able to say, me boosting this post led to this many sales because often it's a sort of a trickling in over time and it's just like an extra touch point. So it, it makes life a little bit difficult. It makes it harder to want to invest in organic social just given that you know, the, the deck is stacked against you already. Yeah, I think it's a good way of, a really, really good way of, um, of putting it. I think I mean, we use the word attribution a lot, actually attributing those sales to the thing that happened. You know, we, we've had some clients, and I'll be honest, they're not, not the right kind of clients, in my opinion, who um, they want to attribute every single pound. I think, I think what you need to do is you need to see how much you can attribute across all channels, especially the paid ones, because you're, as you say, you're spending money. So actually the equation changes. It's not a oh, let's just post something up this afternoon and watch all our customers go, yay, we love you so much. It's actually a case of, well, we're going to spend 100 or $200 on boosting this post. We need to know if that's going to yield a return. Because if it's not, as a business, we're going to fi find ourselves in financial trouble if we keep just chucking money out the door, not knowing if it's doing anything. But equally, you know, it's always the sort of thing, the more bullets you shoot, the more targets you'll hit. 
And so I think there's definitely an element of, yeah, of, of, of sort of splitting your budget accordingly, isn't it, between the customers that are buy ready right now and then the ones who were just doing a bit of awareness at this stage. And if they're ready to convert in the future, then great. If not, absolutely fine. You know, we've got their budget there for that reason. We know we're going to make profit in total. But uh, yeah, as I say a lot on the podcast, we won't get into the attribution models today. I've had a lot of requests over the last sort of six months to do an episode on attribution. And I, I can promise everybody it's coming, but it might be 10 years <laughs> away before we decide to touch it. But let's let's talk, John, about, about paid social then while, while we're on this topic. Because I think, as you say, paid, in my opinion, social for businesses is mostly paid now. As you say, it's a, it's a very challenging thing. How did you guys sort of first approach it? Like when was the first time you were like, and you know, it might have been when it was just yourself in the business, but how, how did you guys kind of start the journey on social? Was it a late night, slightly drunk credit card <laughs> transaction <laughs> of $50, $50? Or did you guys take a different approach in? Like what was the first sort of few stages for you? Yeah, it was a very different approach. So, so really the first paid social marketing we did was after my co-founder had joined and we were looking to test various different value propositions on different customer demographics mm. because the sort of route into this business was not one of oh i see this great market opportunity and i'm gonna go after that it was really i was solving a problem for myself in creating the perfect hydration product and after that you figure out well who else wants this which isn't what i necessarily would recommend to most people who are starting out like in terms of the chronology of what you make but that was the the playing field and so we wanted to understand okay how do different demographics respond to these different value propositions to give you an idea of what those value propositions might look like it might be very athletically driven so use this to hydrate during and after sports sure it might be a little bit sort of after drinking alcohol type use case which is pretty common as well and then kind of the the one that you know most comes through in our marketing now which is really around this proactive wellness use case where you're using it to stay ahead of dehydration as part of your sort of arsenal of living a healthier lifestyle. And, and that's something we tested with all these different audiences. And we looked not only at the acquisition cost of the customer, but over some time, like how quickly do those customers come back and how many of like what percentage of them come back. And so from that, we were able to understand, okay, even though we have this product that is applicable to everyone, you can't boil the ocean. You need to have some focus. So that exercise allowed us to focus in on those initial groups and messages that we wanted to use. And that was the starting point. We did work with an agency to help us on that because neither myself nor my co-founder had any background in running ads. And so that was the starting point. But very quickly, we realized that it made sense for one of us to become better than fluent at running ads ourselves. So my co-founder really dove in. He's, he's got a great brain for this kind of thing and very quickly was sort of competing with the agencies in terms of like who could get the better acquisition costs. So yeah, that, that, that's kind of where we landed. And since then, we've, we've grown out our own internal team. We've used various agencies over time and, and had advisors who've helped to teach us better ways of approaching the paid acquisition game. But that was very much the starting point. Nice. I, I love the fact that you guys started with some tests as well. I think 
it's always a challenge when certainly when there's sort of one person in the business and obviously you took the step quite quickly to have a co-founder and you mentioned they've got a background in finance and equity etc which i think is a really important point in your journey especially but so often people are kind of okay i'll put a hundred pounds on facebook or a hundred dollars you know i've heard that facebook's a gold mine and i'm going to start mining there and if only it was that easy you know and then people sort of say oh people on facebook don't buy my products but actually the reality is the right people will buy the right products at the right time in the right scenario if you run the channel right. And there's a lot of ifs in that statement. But yeah, no, again, interesting just to hear the, the fact that you guys have tested it. And I think also reaching out to get some expert help. But equally, it sounds to me in a good way that you guys have always wanted to have a, a good grasp internally on this stuff, which is quite unique. I think a lot of businesses assume that we'll just pay an agency and they'll do it all for us. Whereas actually you guys want to have a vested interest in that process i think it comes down to accountability right it, it's it's hard to hold someone accountable if you don't understand what they're doing and early on we would we would often be told by agency partners oh you know just wait the algorithm has to has to sort of learn about this and and, and it's just in the learning phase and it'll take a couple of weeks for this to be up and running. And meanwhile, we're hemorrhaging money. Yeah. You know, money that we've just raised that that goes to paying our team buying inventory every single dollar is like painful to lose and after a while we started talking to people founders who were a year or two years ahead of us in building their business and those those ended up being a great resource both in terms of how to best communicate with agency partners and then also how to learn quickly what that accountability process looks like in terms of working with agency partners in an area that you're not familiar with so for us paid off, I think, to get familiar. And, and my co-founder is not running the account in the day-to-day now. We have a team. But I, I think it was a very good use of time. And we, we still dip into agencies now and then because the platforms change over time. The strategies change. And ultimately, working with an agency partner who has loads of clients and is exposed to lots of different kind of strategies and approaches can be really good for rejuvenating our approach. So yeah, that's just kind of like some of how our paid social has evolved over time. Sure. And I think in the same thread, there's tiers of agencies as well. I think, you know, there's the kind of, and I think I've worked in every tier now, there's the kind of freelancers, you're on your own consultants who phenomenal amounts of value, but only so much capacity. And then you've got the kind of middle range of agencies that have probably slightly less attention to detail. Cause a lot of people you're working with, it's a job as opposed to it's my own personal career and it's all on me. If I lose you, I've lost the money, which, you know, it changes things. It makes it different yet. They're probably, you know, Facebook partners or Google partners and have a bit more experience. And then you've got the top tier of the sort of, which you guys, it sounds like you guys are probably not, not near there yet. And a lot of businesses never reach, but there's a, it, there comes a tier where you need one of those sort of top global agencies. And certainly some of our clients, we've, we've handed over to, to those guys that, you know, will get your brand absolutely everywhere on TV, on billboards, on all digital channels as one giant omni-channel centralized campaign. But as you kind of alluded to, it all comes at a price. And actually, I think it's really important that businesses get the journey right. And I think certainly for smaller store owners, I would say if you guys are really serious about growing the business learn Facebook ads, learn Google ads, so that similar to you guys, even if you do outsource it, at least you can talk the language, brief them properly, and know the difference between, yes, that's the right approach, or actually, I need to intervene and share some more information or some more data to get to the right result. I think there's definitely a balance in there between 
how much we want, for example, our clients, how much we want them to engage with us and how much we don't want them to engage with us. I think we just got to make it clear where the line is so that they're not doing the job and we're just kind of there. And equally, we're just not going completely rogue doing what we want, you know, without any accountability, as you say. Right, right. Yeah, no, I I think you're right. A healthy balance leads to the, uh, the best outcome. Indeed, indeed. And let's talk about creatives then. Because that's always an interesting topic, I think, with social and varies a lot between lots of different, certainly e-commerce businesses that we work with. What kind of creatives do you guys go for? Do you have the sort of emotive videos? Is it lots of images? Do you work with influencers a lot to get the content? Like, what does is, what is sort of uh, creative makeup for you guys look like? Yeah, so we, I mean, we have a mix of video and still assets. We have had a lot of success with UGC, so user-generated content of late, and running that like not very polished. I think that's the the whole idea of it is it's, you know, you're looking at someone who could be natively posting in the feed and you're just looking at them engaging with our product. That That's what's been good of late. Previously, we've had content where it's sort of like what we call talking heads content, interviews of, of usually me because I'm the scientist behind the product, kind of talking about how it works, why it works, when to use it. And I think that's important for building trust with people. They, they get to see, yeah. you know, this isn't just some random supplement looking thing from a brand like like made overseas it's made here in the country and there are real people behind it with the right credentials to be making a product like that so that's something i think we we probably exhausted i'm thinking of one video in particular that used that type of content so (laughs) you know we'll we'll do a refresh of that content we've tried big swings and it's worth talking about that so we've tried making these really big budget sort of produced videos that have almost like TVS kind of microfilm. Yeah, almost. I, I would say like we've had a similar to if you're familiar with Poopery or the Squatty Potty video. There's, there's yeah, some, I've seen the Potty one. <laughs> yeah, that one. That one like hit virality. Dollar Shave Club, I guess, would be the other example of. Um, yep. But used th- to be a customer. Yeah, but theirs was like a very low. But they figured it out first. They were very early to the format, and it was lower budget. So we we tried the high budget one, and we had like long video. And then we had smaller assets that would retarget people based on where they dropped off of the main video. And it it was all very complicated. And frankly, uh, I would chalk that one up as a loss for us. I think it it was a good video and and the people who did engage with it, you know, enjoyed it, but did it work from a scale standpoint? No, I don't think so. So now we're a lot scrappier with the content that we run and we have an internal team. We have a creative strategist internally and his job, he's a video editor, but he's also the person who's looking at content, looking at the data of what's working and what's not working and making decisions on, okay, you know, based on the data from the last couple of weeks, I think we need to be running this type of content. And he's able to like splice content together for us. So nice. next time I shoot Talking Heads videos, we'll like get the raw files and he's able to cut that into other types of videos along the way so that we're, you know, constantly making sure our assets match what's working on Facebook right now. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. We've we've actually pre-recorded a couple of episodes coming up and one of them was with this amazing business in the US and I won't give it too many spoilers because the episode itself is definitely worth a listen. But I said to them like who writes all your content then because you seem to be pumping content out for fun. And it wasn't necessarily video or images, but they said the text content because it's a B2B product text makes sense in that industry. They actually hired somebody who left initially a scathing review that then, as the more they read this enormous essay this person had written, the more it then started making really logical suggestions of how they could improve the product and then realized this person was an IT person who was buying their product and fitting it himself. 
So they hired him and he's now their content writer. So it's interesting how you were saying about having somebody internally that can put together the right content at the right time. There's definitely a theme of that evolving. And I think where those people come from is not always you know, putting a job ad out for somebody who just shoots video. I and mean, it's actually finding someone who, similar to yourself, is passionate about what the product achieves at the business, which I think is really important. How much then does it help having a product that, and I could put loads of bullet points under this question, a product that you believe in, you've helped uh, create, you've mentioned about video content for you. Obviously, the product, in a sense, was made for you and you're now sharing it with all your customers. How much, I'm not going to use the word easy, but how much more uh, strategic, I guess is a better word, does that then make your content focus with your social activity and social content? I think, uh, I think my answer is probably not what you're expecting. Okay. It's a blessing and a curse. So we play in a space that is quite regulated, right? Sure. It's stuff that you're ingesting. So you have to be careful about how you present your product. And our brand is based in efficacy. Efficacy, simplicity, and an elevated experience. Those are our three product pillars, and I run product. So that it's super important to me that we you know, present our brand in a positive light. The downside of that is sometimes I've, I have a good network of founders who, who run ads now, and one piece of advice I received early on was, hey, the ads that have done the best for us have been the ones that made me the most uncomfortable. Oh, wow. And I think there's an element of truth to that. We've seen like a lot of the more controversial ads tend to lead to the best results for us. But by being like not only personally involved in the brand, like showing up in some of the videos, but also like really caring about the the way that people interact with us and the quality of the product and, and such, it makes me a lot more hesitant to run those ads that that perhaps more daring and and also like a, a lot more hesitant to make claims that you know, we, we have competitors in this space who are making claims that are absolutely categorically like not provable. And <laughs> I won't do that because like I, my identity as a scientist forces me to make sure that our claims like line up with what can be scientifically proven. Yep. And that, that sort of makes the playing field a, a little bit harder for us, to be honest. So that, that's the, the curse side. Obviously the blessing side is that I understand the science really well and I'm able to talk to the different use cases and functions. And it's not like I have to go to a third party to learn about that and then sort of translate that. That is basically what my degree was in and what I've spent the past few years doing. So that's the positive of it. But there is definitely a drawback. And sometimes I look at some of the businesses that have a very irreverent brand and, and a brand that has nothing to do with science. And I'm like, oh, that looks like it would be a lot of fun <laughs> just because you can say anything and it can it can all be a bit of a joke. And and that is it's it's a little bit harder to pull that off with our brand when when i'm so like personally tied up in it i think the grass is always greener though isn't it i think whenever we very true whenever we come up against some sort of challenge or obstacle it's so easy to go i mean i, I you know i run several businesses here in the uk and it's like the amount of times i get home and my lovely fiance is a doctor it's quite you know again it's, sometimes i look at her job and go what guaranteed income great pensions you know like it's, this all looks great why are you so upset and exhausted and tired? And the grass is always green. And then when she explains what she's been doing all day, it sometimes makes me uh, makes me want to throw up. But I think, yeah, I think there's always that element. But equally, for running a running a Shopify business, an e-commerce store, one thing we've heard again and again on the podcast is that it's all about customer. It's all about customer. It's all about customer. And that that stems from product. And I think 
I personally think you're absolutely right to focus on making sure that all of your claims are absolutely correct. We've worked with plenty of businesses in pharmaceuticals, alcohols, things like that, where it again is so heavily regulated that even if and I gave, oh, I've given this example on another podcast that's coming out in a few weeks. We had the words sex toys on one of our websites, one of our agency sites recently. And the reason it was on there is because there was a whole list of FAQs. And one of them said, do you ever work with mildly prohibited items? So we said, yeah, yeah, we've worked with these three or four here. So as soon as we turned on any Google ads, Google, of course, crawls the site, finds this single word or these couple of words and goes, oh gosh, you've got to get permission to run this ads. You can't, you know, advertise this stuff. And of course, the rejection notice we got from Google initially was a sort of, you need, you know, ASA approval and all the rest of it before we'll let you advertise these things. And it was like, what are you talking about? We're advertising a course on how to learn about Shopify. What on earth could be wrong about this? Like, it's not drugs, it's not alcohol, like absolutely bizarre. But I think, yeah, again, we've been through so many different ASA rounds with clients trying to get things approved and get the right content and all that sort of stuff. I think you're absolutely right, but I can totally relate that you have those days where so it's always the bigger competitor as well, the one you're chasing at the moment, and they write something on their Facebook or um, they put something on the website that says, you know, we, our products can do this, or there's a video that you sort of watch and think, ah, oh, you know, we could say the same as that, or that's just a completely untrue claim. But I think one of the challenges you get is that the rules start to get so blurred as to what you can and can't say. So how do you guys tackle that? Like, do you have an expert internally? Do you yourself, are you qualified enough to know what you can and can't say? Or, you know, have you had any real issues with that? So I'm, I'm pretty conservative on, on this type of risk. So we have a couple of regulatory lawyers who we work with cool. on a sort of a case-by-case basis. And over the time, every time we have a call with them, we like update this claims document we have just to make sure that everyone on the team even like if we're working with an influencer they get the claims document hey you can say this you absolutely can't say this because we've had situations where someone might like say something and it's like a little off and we just can't use it and they're sort of confused why can't you use this like well you said this and that's absolutely not allowed so it's it's definitely it's a pain but i feel good about doing it right yeah i I'm quite similar. I'm very conservative. It's a sort of, I always take the approach in business. If you don't know, don't do it. And then if we definitely know, then we might do it. It's always my approach to things, whether that's financial investments or as you say, stuff like this. But I think, I think one, one thing I'm hearing again and again, actually about your story, which is interesting is you seem very quick and eager to get the right experts in to advise on the right things at the right time, etc. Is that fair? Has that been a theme of your growth is making sure that we we know what we're doing. We've got the right resources around us. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for us, and I credit my co-founder with, with sort of building this into our culture. Mm. There are people who have done this many, many more times than we have. And there are people who's like day job, you know, the agency example is a good one. If you have 10 clients, you're seeing 10 Facebook ad accounts. Yep. We only see one. And so like it, making decisions based on that sample size is, is not always smart. It's good to bring in fresh opinions, experts who've done it before, seen it before, or are currently on the front lines with bigger budgets, for example. And yeah, we're, we're very quick to move on that, whether it's legal, whether it's, you know, advising us on the move into retail, it, it's always smart to get 
people on side as advisors or you know consultants sure and i mean we, we've got a couple of advisors on our board we've got you know we've got legal counsel we've got an employment a separate employment lawyer for just anything to do with employment i think it's absolutely key and i've, I've realized more and more as businesses that i'm involved in have grown how many mistakes i would have made and we will bring this back to social in a sec but how many mistakes i would have made if i hadn't got the right advice and actually how costly those mistakes would be you know the sort of you take one step forward two steps back there's probably five or six career defining moments or business growth defining moments that thankfully i took the time and listened to the right person spoke to the right person etc and therefore got to the right result and i think I think it's so important and yeah, I absolutely credit you guys for, for the way you've approached that. What are some of the future challenges you're coming up against then both with the business and then we'll, I'll ask the same about social as well in a second once we've heard about the business. You know, wh- where are you guys going? What are some of the next big hurdles, next big growth points that, that you guys can see ahead? So I think for us, and this perhaps is less relevant for this audience, but it, it's like what happens after direct consumer or, or what happens alongside direct consumer, I should say. For us, we, we recognize like, Trends are all pointing in that direction. I'm shopping more online than I did five years ago. People who are just becoming it at an age where they have income and are able to spend it, they're, they're spending the majority of it online. It's not you know, through retail. Sure. That said, there is a certain sort of scale you can reach in retail that you just simply can't do in e-commerce quickly and efficiently because people are still going to stores to buy stuff. Yeah. And that it's kind of like Amazon, right? Someone goes to Amazon, they're searching for a product to solve a problem they have. So you get that like that traffic straight straight away. This sort of like ties into SEO a bit, but if someone's walking through the aisles of a store, they're in an aisle and that shows that they have high purchase intent for the things in that aisle. And so for us, like making the, the adapting to being an omni-channel business is absolutely a challenge. The way it works is so different, you know, on Facebook, I know, okay, my customer acquisition cost is this. If I spend X number of dollars, I'm going to get Y number of dollars back. And then Z percentage of customers are going to come back again yep. in a month or two months or whatever. Retail, you have a gatekeeper. You have to go through the buyer and they place a PO. And then you don't really know how it's going to go after that. Sure. You, know, you put the product on the shelf and it's your job to make sure that the product comes off the shelf. Getting it on is half the battle. The other half is getting people to buy it off the shelf. And it's just like a whole different ball game. We've had to hire a, you know, a great sales team, some marketers with retail experience. And you know, you've got to make sure that the two arms of the business, the e-commerce and the retail side, speak to each other and that it becomes a, a truly omni-channel business where it all works together. I mean, there's so much to dig into that, I think. And I mean, you mentioned, you know, is is that relevant to our audience? We've actually seen a high percentage of people listening to the podcast and also clients we're working with have come at this completely the opposite way around to you guys in the sense that they've started wholesale, they've started in the retail business, and then they've had this kind of complete freak out of, oh my gosh, why, why are we charging only half the actual retail price to give it off to these other guys? Why don't we just charge the full retail price ourselves on our own website and we'll control the customer? And in addition to that as well, there's a lot of businesses that have moved to Shopify because they're already working with eBay and Amazon and um, Etsy, not on the high street, a whole range of the sort of marketplace platforms. And now they're trying to go direct to consumer. And I think there's definitely not a, in my experience and opinion anyway, there's definitely not a preferred route whether you should do one before the other. However, I have heard and bringing this seamlessly back to uh, back to social as well, 
I've heard a lot in the past that the buying teams at retailers, and I've never sat in the room with with them during a pitch myself, but certainly I've heard a lot that they will look at things like social media. We've certainly had a lot of requests over the years from brands that want to go more through the retail channels say to us, oh, we need to increase our Facebook following because we look really small at the moment, but we're not. We've got tons of customers. But they do take a, take a notice to that. I mean, I don't know how far down the journey you are with that, but is that something that is played on your mind? Is it come into effect of, obviously, you guys do have some followers, but has that been a factor then in, in some of those decisions and meetings? So not explicitly, okay, but almost certainly behind the scenes, there is some calculus going on around that. So you're absolutely right. Like if, if I was doing another business, I would start online as well. There's no barrier, right? You don't have to go to a gatekeeper. You can build your followers. You can refine your product. And, and on social, you can make yourself look bigger than you are. I think based on the way we invested, because we were not focused on retail at first, like I said earlier, we didn't invest in organic social. Now that we are offline, we need to like increase that presence, both from a, hey, we need to like get this on the shelf, but also in terms of getting it off the shelf as well and, and getting people to buy it. So I think organic is hard. It's a tough nut to crack because it's really hard to measure the return. And you can go mad trying all these different ways. It comes back to the attribution piece. The nice thing about retail is at a certain point, you can almost give up on attribution. People should not take this as true advice. What mm. I mean is, you know, I can spend money on, let's say, a TV ad, and I can have the call to action back to my Shopify website, but I know that I'm going to pick up some residual demand at our retail locations yeah. because someone's going to be walking down the aisle. They're like, oh, I remember this. I've seen this. I'm going to buy it. So that's like the, the one nice thing is you can start marketing in other areas. Sure. And I think, I mean, as I say, attribution, I'll try and do something before the end of the year for everyone listening in um, at home or in the car sort of thing. Um, it's, it's just, it's such a minefield. There's one person in particular I want to get in who used to work for ASOS and I had the pleasure of having a beer with him one night and he was telling me about the battles he was having between several teams as a marketing person. And the battles were between things like finance director saying, we're investing this much, where's the return? And him saying, well, we've got this many new followers, this much web traffic, this much extra brand awareness. Right. And he was saying, but I'm, okay, I'm, I'm finance. I can't quantify that. Show me the money. You know, where is the money? And then it was a kind of, well, brand awareness has gone up. And it's like, yeah, but we have a brand awareness department. And it's like, <laughs> we fund them. Why aren't they doing Facebook? Because they haven't got a clue about Facebook. They're doing billboards and TV, you know, and sort of really, you know, almost out of funnel, I would call it. So it's not even top of funnel, but out of funnel guerrilla marketing. I think it really is a challenge. And I think the approach we've often taken is to say, let's record as much direct as we can. So we know where they've clicked on a Facebook ad or a Google ad or a Google shopping link or whatever, and then they've purchased something. That's step one. Step two is if any of our analytical tools can connect up multi-journey, we'll take those as well. And then step three is, you know, what, what's the total total spend, total revenue, and put that against the margins of the product as well. So I think we've often kind of taken that approach and there might be a few extra stages for each client specifically, but it really, really is a challenge to, uh, to get that right. Totally agree. Yeah, I think step three is probably the most important for us. Like the high level view of is, is this working? Yeah. Uh, and step three is the one that gives that to you. Cool, cool. Well, look, John, it's been so good to have you on the show today. I really appreciate your time and, and joining in. How can people get in touch with you? Best place for us is on our website, drinkhydrant.com and on Twitter at drinkhydrant. Excellent. Well, again, thanks so much for joining the show. It's been great to have you with us uh, today, John. Thanks for having me, Nick.
Cool. And for everybody else listening in, we've got our final episode next week on social. And then after that, we'll be back the following week with a whole series of podcasts, which, as you probably heard me say a few times today and last week, already recorded. So I know exactly what's coming up and it's going to be absolutely amazing. Um, We're talking about how to automate your Shopify stores and your backend systems. We're running it again with our good friends over at Brightpearl. So make sure you tune into that. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next Friday. We post every Friday. And uh, I hope we're staying well and we'll see you again soon. Sign up for free for the Shopify-approved marketing course at 1000salesandbeyond.com and get our show notes at justaskparker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Winning with Shopify podcast. See you next time.